While big players like Coinbase, Fact, and Consensus make most of the headlines in crypto and on crypto Twitter, there are some institutional players that have been quietly operating in the background for years in the Bitcoin market. One such player is Jump Trading and its affiliate venture capital firm, Jump Capital. Jump Trading is one of the most active traders in the digital asset world and also one of the most discreet. Leading investments on the crypto site at its sister firm, Jump Capital, is Peter Johnson, a principal at the firm, who joined the scoop to discuss the firm's origin story in crypto. We also dove into the firm's crypto incubator at the University of Illinois Champaign, and we talked about the trends Johnson is expecting to play out in 2019. I hope you enjoy the episode. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Friends, Romans, countrymen, thanks so much for tuning in to what is an incredibly special episode of The Scoop. Not only do we have my very dear friend, Pete Johnson, coming in all the way from Chicago, from Jump, Jump Capital, Jump Trading, but we are also recording for the first time in our new New York City offices on Lafayette Street in Lower Manhattan. Pete is one of the foremost venture capitalists in the Chicago crypto scene. We're excited to have him here to ch- chat about what's going on maybe in Chicago, Jump's origin stories in the space, and of course some of the investment opportunities he's looking at as a principal at the firm. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. So uh, let's get started with exactly that origin story, if you will. Um, for, for context, right? Jump trading is probably one of the most prominent um, Bitcoin cryptocurrency uh, trading operations in the market. Uh, Bloomberg has reported that they are the maybe one of the major benefactors of Robinhood's uh, order flows that are being sent through them to uh, systematically internalize. When I was at Business Insider, I reported on the uh, graphical user interface that you guys were developing for crypto OTC trading and um, it's not quite known exactly how much you trade, 
uh, but it's definitely known to be a lot. On the venture side, you've made at least 15 investments um, that, that are public. There may be some that, some that aren't, uh, many of which were incubated through your relationships with the University of Illinois. Um, talk to us a little bit about how it all got started. Yeah, absolutely. So I joined Jump Capital in 2013 uh, to do fintech investing. And it was that year that I first became aware of Bitcoin. And I became aware of it through the situation in Cyprus where they were seizing bank deposits and Bitcoin spiked on that news. So I started reading about that and, and thought that it was, it was crazy that you know, potentially there was this magical internet money that people were interested in holding instead of their, their nation's currency. So I started reading about it and learning more about it and um, became convinced that this was a, a once-in-a-generation technological innovation. That was, it was going to change the way money was stored and transferred. It was going to be a new asset class for investors. So I, I became that guy who wouldn't stop talking about Bitcoin in the office. Um, luckily for me, at Jump and within Jump Trading, there was, I wasn't the only one, and there was a lot of folks on the trading side that were also interested in, in Bitcoin at that time. Uh, so, so a group of us you know, continued to learn about the space, and then in uh, 2014 and, and into 2015 is when Jump Trading started to get active in the space. And, and that was first at our research lab, Jump Labs, down at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Um, and that's where the work initially started to, to learn about the market, to start gathering data, and to, to start trading. And then over the next uh, couple of years, as the market developed, our, our trading, Jump Trading's uh, trading also developed, and we became uh, one of the largest traders and market makers in, in the crypto space. Uh, that then developed in around 2017, um, we saw that there was large counterparties that were interested in working directly with Jump Trading. Uh, so that's when the OTC uh, trading started, where we partnered directly with large financial institutions, payment pro processors, foundations, um, trading firms to provide liquidity uh, directly to them. Uh, so now we have three ways that we're active participants in the market. We do on-exchange trading, we have a large OTC business, and we make venture capital investments. Let's start with the venture capital business, obviously, because that's where you're sitting and, and that's where you're spending most of your time. Although, as we talked over the phone last night, sometimes you know, you, you, you're working with the traders to figure out how you can help them and, and vice versa. But on the venture side, uh, let's walk through some of your investments. Um, BitGo is probably the most notable. Um, how do you, I guess, being out there in, in Chicago, maybe you might feel a little isolated from the San Francisco, New York-centric uh, crypto communities, how do you break in and, and what do you look for in, in, in an investment? Yeah, so, so I feel very much in the center of things being connected with, with Jump Trading. I think that we you know, see the majority of what's happening in this space. Um, and something like BitGo, that's a company that you know, I was familiar with, with for years, and it became clear to me that one, custody and privacy key security is obviously one of the biggest problems in the space and that BitGo had established themselves as one of the most trusted names in crypto, where there's not a whole lot of trusted names. And our view was that at the sp as the space developed, as more exchanges came in, as more traders, um, you know, more participants came in, BitGo, as a battle-tested solution, was the default choice that those players were going to look to to secure their keys and have a qualified custodian. Um, we also believe that as more large financial institutions will come into this space, they're also going to look for a battle-tested solution to store their private keys. 
and and to to manage that part of the business. And we rather, think that Bitco will be well positioned for that as well. Rather than developing their own internal exactly. solutions. Yep. Mm -hmm. Because we have seen, I think it was last year, there was a story about Nomura developing their own in-house custody solution and potentially offering that to the market. Is that a trend that you've seen at all? Or you, you, you imagine that custody will continue to be outsourced to these more crypto-native firms? Well, real, just to interject really quickly, but he's kind of like a great person to ask that question because they've also invested in Curve which is another type of, they're not necessarily custodian in the same sense that BitGo is, but they're trying to offer these solutions to secure assets as they move around. So let's focus on custody, uh, to, to Teo's point. Let's, what do you yeah, exactly. So, so what we expect to happen in this space is that you will have some technology-savvy leading companies in this space that will develop their own solutions. For example, Fidelity comes into this space, you know, they, they develop their own solution, for example you're going to have a lot of other companies that come into the space that don't want, nor is it a good decision, I think, uh, for them to be developing you know, private key custody solutions. They should outsource that to somebody that has the best solution in the space, or one of the best solutions in the space. Um, so the two investments that we've made in the private key security or custody space is one is BitGo, which is battle-tested, trusted, you know, kind of one, one of the premier names in, crisp, in crypto that I think everyone is going to, it's going to be at the top of your list if you're looking for a custody solution. And is, is a regulated custodian, qualified custodian. On the other end of the spectrum is Curve, which is just focused on private key security with a unique technology, the multi-party compute technology, um, that is purely focused on the technology side of it and not going into the, you know, full qualified custodian, um, you know, financial services realm that somebody like BitGo is doing. It's interesting with the BitGo investments. So we've just seen Zappo, another of the, uh, of the big custody players, acquired by Coinbase at an astonishingly low valuation. And I think I'm right in saying that Zappo was actually charging 0% to their customers as well. So custody was, was almost a loss-leading operation. What does that mean for your investment in Bitco? I think that they are, on the surface they might seem similar, but they do have very different business models. Um, I do think that it is relevant that custody fees, we fully expect to come down over time. If you ask Mike Belshi at Bitco, he'll say he expects them to significantly come down over time. And, and we think that, that that is right and that should happen, and that there are various other ways that, that custodians end up monetizing, which are not direct custody fees. What do you think those are? Uh, things like lending, I think, is the, the most obvious. Mm -hmm. uh, Bitco's way. looking to get into prime broker-related services as well. So there are other avenues by which they can make money. But the Bitco-Zappo conversation lends itself to something that you've written about and that Teo and I have uh, checked out a bit on. In terms of where we see service providers going in this space, um, do we con continue to see... Coin, the Coinbase of the world gobble up more verticals in terms of offering custody, trading, prime broker services, um, many, many others. Staking. Staking and, and everything versus, okay, I'm going to be like Curve as an example and focus on this very specific aspect of the institutional market. Um, from your seat, uh, 
What's your thesis on that? Yeah, so it, I think you're going to continue to see both. I think that the large players, like the Coinbase, they want to offer more services to their clients, which is smart. From a market structure perspective, I think separating custody from exchange is a better market structure. And I think that for two reasons. One is that I think it's more secure. Say if you're trading across 10 exchanges, you can either have coins at those 10 exchanges, and you have to trust those 10 exchanges, or you can have your coins at one, one custodian for those 10 exchanges, and then you just need to trust that one custodian. So it's safer. And it's also more capital efficient, because if you can have all your coins at one custodian and trade across 10, custodi 10 exchanges instead of having to pre-fund those 10 exchanges, it's much more capital efficient. And right now, crypto is a, it's very, it's a capital intensive business. So the, the, the second argument definitely resonates with me. And I think we had a similar conversation with uh, Nelson Minier from, from Kraken, this idea that having to pre-fund accounts across various exchanges is, is obviously capital inefficient. This idea of trusting one custodian versus 10 seems almost counterintuitive to me, though, in the sense that one, cost, one custodian is a single point of failure, whereas 10 custodians, you know, one might drop off, but at least you have uh, this, this backup set of, of nine custodians. It's kind of like the, like the qualified custodian rules came into effect for a reason. Um, and some of those came on the back of, of Madoff. And then the reason was, like, let's define what the entities are that you can trust. And then let's keep entities with those, those parties that you can trust. And, and, and I think that that is a good way to go about things, is having here are the entities that you can trust instead of, I think as we've seen across exchanges, you can't always trust various exchanges. Of course, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm making the assumption that these various custodians are all qualified custodians. The Coinbase's, the Gemini's. Yes, if they're, if they're all trusted qualified custodians, then it moves, I think, more to the second point on, on capital efficiency across the exchanges. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are several pain points uh, for traders in this market. And we've talked about this on, on several episodes of The Scoop. Um, the lack of, you know, tr a trusted venue on which to change without the worry hanging over of, of a hack or, or something similar um, makes it difficult for firms like yours, or, or at least a few years ago, to get in. Um, looking on a more macro level about what the pain points are, and I'm sure you get a sense in talking with the traders at Jump and then looking at where you can invest, um, what are those pain points and where are those investment opportunities? Yeah, on a, on a macro level across trading, I think that the greatest opportunities are increasing the capital efficiency in this market. So what does that mean? It means credit, um, and it means having buying power across various exchanges without having to pre-fund at all those exchanges. It means settlement solutions uh, that are more efficient and safe ways to settle. I think that those are the main things. It's, it's how do you improve capital efficiency in a market that is very capital inefficient compared to traditional markets. So what investments do you make? Like what, what companies out there are doing some of these things? So I think BitGo certainly uh, is working on, on some of these types of solutions. Um, companies like Omniex, which are allowing trading across uh, various uh, exchanges. And then kind of the next logical step Beyond that is how do you not need to pre-fund all those exchanges when you're trading across them. Um, I mean, lending 
uh, companies were, were not investors in, in you know, some of the lending providers, but I think that that is a, a great space that you know, making more liquid markets for, for borrowing and lending helps, helps the capital markets evolve and continue to develop. A lot of these are more centralized or centralized solutions by, by centralized companies. What do you guys think about a lot of the stuff that's going on in DeFi with decentralized lending, decentralized trading? And the like is that something you're you're interested in at this point or maybe more down the line yeah so i love what's going on in the DeFi space because it's showing us what's possible Teo, be still your beating heart and it's, <laughs> and it's fascinating to see all the different things that are possible and i think some of the things that are getting worked on in DeFi will become highly usable over time but i think the question right now is like what solves the problem better, a centralized solution or a decentralized solution? And for most situations and use cases, the centralized solution solves the problem better than the decentralized one, and that what, that's why you're seeing more volumes on centralized solutions than decentralized ones. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think Pete has a fascinating perspective to answer this question, which is what needs to happen in the DeFi lending space for groups like Jump Trading to actually start using them? That's a great question. I think it needs to be a, like a clearly better solution than the centralized version. Like in, in, most, in most technologies, you look like, how, how, like something needs to get, be 10x better for somebody to switch. So how does decentralized lending become 10 times better than centralized lending? So that's interesting, because I, I tend to think about it more as uh, there, are, there are various obstacles, the main one being compliance obstacles, lack of AML, KYC, know your counterparty. Uh, rather than the, the simple fact that, hey, this isn't quite 10x better. Yeah, I, I, I think it needs to be. I mean, that part of it being 10x better is, yeah, it needs to be regulatory compliant. It needs to be easy to use. You need to be 100% sure it's secure. Like all these things, so the, the rates you're getting need to be you know, better than you're getting on a centralized solution. Sure, which they are right now. They are, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, so it has at least one of them knocked down. Have you guys tested with any of these different platforms just for your own experimentation? Because the benefit of, of Jump and, and Jump Capital as well is that you're playing with your own money. I mean, you guys are investing employees of Jump Trading and the founders of Jump Trading's money. So there's no, there is, you know, you guys can't break laws, obviously, but there is a level of regulatory, uh, um, uh, leeway. Leeway, I would say, or, or, or um, you know, kind of get to operate in your own little sandbox to an extent that, that doesn't come with, you know, being a large asset manager or a, or a white, white shoe uh, investment bank. So that gives you the opportunity, whether it's in the lab or somewhere else, to experiment. And, and just to follow up on that, you know, the, the, the size of these open finance markets just aren't big enough to deploy a significant amount of capital, you know, a jump trading level of capital right now. But from an opportunity perspective, the spreads on these decentralized exchanges and the, uh, the yields being offered to, to lenders right now are unheard of. Sure. Um, and if you look at the spreads on centralized exchanges, they are some of, if not the tightest spreads you will find in any market. So you, you, you go on Gemini right now, Coinbase, and the spreads in the Bitcoin market are often single cent spreads. Sure. So the question there being, you have this regulatory freedom in a sense since you're 
playing with your own money for one and two there's this you know profusion of opportunity in decentralized finance including these crazy spreads and these crazy yields um with 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 that what do you do yeah so i'd, I'd make a couple comments on that one is that we do have a lot of flexibility being a proprietary trading firm and having proprietary capital that we're investing uh, on the, the venture side. We do operate as if we are much more regulated than we are. And we do that purposefully on, on, on the trading side um, because that is just the way that Jump has and always will operate. Um, so I don't think that there's maybe the, the comment on more regulatory freedom, uh, you know, we might, might take issue with that. Um, but certainly there is like interesting opportunities in, in the DeFi space. If, if jump trading is doing things there, um, frankly, I can't, can't comment, but it, it certainly seems like there are interesting opportunities. I was reading through your 85 theses for the changing the seasons in crypto land published on LinkedIn. And uh, <laughs> Why are you saying it so slowly? <laughs> it's a great title. And it was also published on LinkedIn. And you have this, this comment on open finance. This was written in May of this year. And uh, you made this prediction that, that open finance needs to hunker down for a longer winter. So this was in May, it's now September. Do you still believe this is the case? If not, what has changed? What else needs to change? Are we still in winter, Peter? Are we still in DeFi winter? I think for DeFi, it, it's still pretty cold. Yeah, I, th I think DeFi is coming along, and I'm excited about DeFi solutions. But is there mainstream use cases for DeFi yet? I, I think it still has some, we have a ways to go for that. I think it's crypto spring in, in trading, in investing, as, as Bitcoin being digital gold, as you know, crypto being a new money transfer rail for moving uh, money across the world and moving between currencies. I, th I think it's spring in a lot of places. Um, but I think DeFi, you know, still needs to develop some. So let's focus on the spring part for a second. Uh, in terms of upcoming deals, um, what do you anticipate the pipeline to look like over the next, I guess now four months till the end of the year, five months until the end of the year, versus, you know, maybe, you know, towards the end of last year, it was kind of deep, deep winter. Uh, what does that look like now? Yeah, we're excited about investing in this space now. Are we ramping things up? I say our, from an investment perspective, we try not, we try to not pay a whole lot of attention to the cycles that we're going through. That's just part of innovation is you have these big cycles that, that, that you go through and you don't want to get too high when the price goes high and too low when the price goes down. Um, I mean, if you zoom out and just look at, you know, if, if you thought five years ago that we could be where we are today, it's incredible. I think if you look at that long-term trajectory, like we're certainly going in the right, right direction in crypto. So we try to be relatively, you know, even-handed on investing, you know, regardless of where we are in any specific cycle. Right but now, what are the, no, what, go ahead. Well, what do the cycles mean for deal flow, though? Did you see deal flow uh, slow down in, in December and, and, and now starting to pick up with uh, this resurgence in the market, or has it been fairly consistent? Yeah, I mean, there was, def there was a huge influx, obviously, in, in 2017 and into 2018 with, with the price move. I mean, the, a ton of things going on, and you had the ICI. Nash Ash. That, that, was, a very, <laughs> that was a very good one. So, so <laughs> for context, Teo actually pitched Peter on a company he was working on. We're going to give Teo potentially the opportunity to try his hand again at what was the company's name? 
Nash Ash. Nash Ash. Yeah, I, uh, that's a sell. That's a short. The name was the best pawn. No, it was one of the best pitches I heard. It was a very good pitch. Yeah, very good is idea. it one of the 15 portfolio companies? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, uh, so you try not to pay attention to the price actions, where we are in the cycle. Um, focus on making good deals, obviously. In terms of valuations, where are we now that things have kind of picked up? Are we seeing a level of frothiness or, or not? There's still some frothiness, yeah. Um, but things are certainly in a better place than they were looking back, you know, during the ICO boom, certainly. Uh, there's been some, some rationalization uh, from there. So I think we're in a, a relatively good place from a valuation perspective right now. What's interesting as well is that several of the investments in your portfolio have been incubated through Jump. Is that correct? Yeah, so we uh, incubate um, some very early stage companies down at our, our research lab down at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Um, so yeah, we, we've had a lab down there for years and we look there if there are interesting uh, you know, students, PhDs, postdocs, professors that are working on things in crypto. We want to support those efforts, and then that's one of the things we do there. So does that sheltered environment perhaps protect you from the frothy valuations that we see in the wider market? I mean, it's one part of what we do, um, but it's certainly where we're involved in, you know, investing in a lot of companies across the space. A lot of those are in New York and San Francisco, so we're certainly not, not shielded from the you know, kind of the, the valuation cycles. Sure. Another question I have. We're starting to see a lot of crypto venture funds allocate capital to liquid assets, primarily Bitcoin and Ether. As, as, as much as their mandate will allow them, I think there's usually this 20% cap of AUM that's allowed to go into a liquid portfolio. Is Jump, whether across jump capital, jump trading, directionally long any of these cryptocurrencies right now? I think it's tough for me to say exactly what, what you know, jump trading's positioning is. Uh, well, I would assume market, as, yeah. a, as a market maker yeah. that their strategy is a market neutral strategy. But perhaps I'm incorrect. But, um, but yeah, you know, is there some kind of side pocket where they just have this natural long position? I mean, as a market maker, you're, you're somewhat just naturally long from holding inventory of coins. Um, yeah, I, I won't speak more to, you know, kind of jump, jump trading strategies. Sure. Yeah. So the reason I ask that question is as a segue into a discussion about your Bitcoin investment thesis. That's not to say that jump has any Bitcoin, but how you think about Bitcoin and an investment thesis around Bitcoin. And again, this goes back to your crypto thesis post. So I think you, you mentioned that Bitcoin has perhaps its, its best use case in emerging markets. But interestingly, you're also very, very bullish on stable coins. So how do you reconcile the two? And where do you think demand for Bitcoin comes from in these emerging, perhaps hyperinflationary developing economies? Yeah, so I think that there's two different use cases here. For digital gold, or store of value, I think Bitcoin is 
the best asset in the world. I think it's better than gold. Um, it's, it's scarce, it's durable, it's portable, it's fungible, it's transferable. It has all the elements that you would want of a store of value. It, it's, except gold, everyone believes, there's this collective belief that everybody has in gold, and I think that's building for, for Bitcoin. And, and, and people will criticize Bitcoin as a, as a store of value because it's not stable. I, th I think when I think of a store of value, I think of something that is A, not correlated with other assets, and B, does well in high inflation environments. I think that that's really why people invest in gold. Um, and I think that Bitcoin suits that uh, need very well and will continue to gain as, as digital gold. Why, why does it suit that, those properties better than any other cryptocurrency? Collective belief. Because frankly, the most important, like, why is gold worth anything? It's, it's because it has those other properties I man mentioned. But the most important thing is just we all believe sure. it's worth something. And do you think that collective belief, that, that momentum can be usurped at this point, ten, roughly 10 years after the release of Bitcoin? Or do you think that the first mover advantage is, uh, is a given at this point? I think for the digital gold um, kind of thesis, Bitcoin is very tough to catch at this point. Not to say it couldn't happen, but it certainly has a very large lead there. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the digital gold um, kind of use for, for Bitcoin. And who are the buyers? Uh, people that want, anyone that wants to diversify their portfolio. I think that if, if you're look, anyone looking for an asset that's not correlated with other assets or has a low correlation, and does well in high inflation rate environments, or they believe it will do well in high inflation rate environments, which I believe those two things about Bitcoin, then that leads you to believe that it, you know, it's, it's a rational thing to include that in a portfolio in, in some percentage, which I believe all those things. So I think that portfolio managers, you know, any investor really, I think is, is a potential buyer for that use case. Do you have any concerns related to Bitcoin? I mean, Bitcoin, do I have a concern? Bitcoin is all of crypto. It's still, a, it's still an experiment at this phase. I mean, the, the, the success of Bitcoin and crypto in general, I think is extremely likely, but it's not certain. It's still an experiment. So do I have concerns? Yeah, it's, it's still an experiment. Of, of course you have concerns. Mm -hmm. um, on the, the use cases in emerging markets and, and crypto's use as a, as a as a global payment rail. I think stable coins are very well suited for that um, because at the end of the day, it, it, it reduces the, the, the volatility you have in Bitcoin. So I think that stable coins will play a huge role in that. I think stable coins will be an increasingly important part of global money flows and it will also have a very meaningful impact on the FX market. Because once you have highly liquid stable coins in various currencies, the, the logical conclusion is and what does that mean for FX? That means you have a global 24-7 FX market that's accessible to anyone. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting point. And I think given your, your seat at Jump, it's something you probably have talked to some of your, your counterparties over on the trading side about how stable coins can impact the business that they do um, in terms of just moving in between, whether it's crypto or moving in between different, different uh, FX uh, currencies in a more efficient manner. Have you had those types of conversations? What, what do they think about stablecoins? Are they bullish? Are they not bullish? Um, I mean, I can't speak for jump trading generally, but I would say I am very excited about the potential of stablecoins. 
Um, well, you talked to yeah, a lot of traders. Yeah, in yeah. Scene, so. I mean, I would, I would say generally. What, what's the, the Chicago trading scene? Do they? What yes. do they think about stablecoins? That there is a ton of potential there. Sure, let's talk a, about a, that. A, a huge amount of potential. Yes, just as far as the way that money flows across the world and between different currencies, like using stablecoins to do that, I think is fundamentally better than you know, using correspondent banks to move money, you know, across the world and between currencies. Just a more efficient way to do things. You just need the market to develop in such a way that these things are have large enough market caps or liquid enough, they, and everyone on both sides is accepting of them, they, that we can get to this. Is there is there one stable coin that to rule them all, so to speak? This episode will be live after the Binance uh, stable coins announced tomorrow morning. Um, every exchange could have their own stable coin. And uh, and I just want to jump in for a second here. I feel like this podcast is just me reading you back uh, your theses, but there's this very interesting line in your post, uh, quote, large global consumer technology and crypto companies may be the best position to provide new global money transfer rails with records either kept on centralized databases or a distributed consensus ledger. This was in May. I think Libra was announced in June, perhaps? Uh, June. It was yeah. like a lifetime ago. Is, is this Facebook's game to lose now? I don't know if it's Facebook's game to lose, but I think Facebook is in in a great position. I'm really excited about what Libra is, what they're doing with Libra, for two reasons. One, it just it gets a lot of people interested in, in crypto, and they're learning more about it. And two, as I mentioned in, in the post, like somebody needs to onboard the world to crypto, and Facebook is in a great position to help onboard the world to crypto. But it's not necessarily the same use case that you know, a Tether or a Pax or a Gemini dollar, rest in peace, might have on the market versus, you know, in terms of what the trading folks you're, you're talking to uh, want. Um, that's a whole different, that's a whole different use case, I think. Yeah, it's, it's different. Um, they both are, you know, looking towards how can you move money across the world and between different people in a more seamless manner, which I think is... Is, is a good goal, and I think that's what we're going towards. And, and it could be, it could be stablecoins, it could be Libra. Uh, my guess is that it'll be, there'll be roles to play for for each of them. Yeah, a hundred percent. You um, grew up on a farm. I did. Yes. So you didn't do any farming. I, I did not do any farming. No. How does that influence the investment decisions you make today? Is there any you know, do you ever harken back to the corn and soybean fields of Minnesota? Wait, Wisconsin? Minnesota, yes. I was right the first time. Oh, man. I, I wish I had a good tale I could weave to tie <laughs> the farm to the investing decisions. Well, I have well, nothing right now. Let's talk about it, right? A lot of the times, you know, farming has to do with animals, but investing has to do with people. It's a people business. And we're almost in very similar businesses. We look at companies and we decide to uh, write on them based off whether they're reputable, have a good business model, et cetera. It's very similar to what we invest our words. We invest our words. You invest your dollars, sir. What do you look for in a company? It, does it start with the people or does it start with something else? Yeah. I mean, if it started with the people, we now know why Teo didn't get any money because he's not the best, but. It starts with the people. I was super impressed with Teo. 
but yeah, so num number one, it, it is people. And I would say in crypto, there's you know, maybe three main things we look for. It starts with the people, unquestionably. Uh, two is the, the business model. Like, are they solving a problem that someone's going to actually pay them for? And that's somewhat obvious, maybe in other markets, but in, in crypto, you obviously, you almost have, have to have that as a criteria. Like, is someone paying you for the, the services you're providing? <laughs> um, and then three, like, does what they're doing align with how we think the space is going to evolve over the next, you know, five plus years? So, you've mentioned that you do not buy the FAT protocol thesis. And I'm going to quote again. More value will accrue at the application layer than the protocol layer. So everybody and their mother seems to have their own definition of the FAT protocol thesis. So I would love to hear your definition and your justification of, of your repudiation of the FAT protocol thesis. Yeah, so I think that during... ICO good times that there was all these you know new protocols that came out and there was the hope that you know they would launch these tokens there'd be some utility for the tokens um, and that they would increase in value. We, sorry, yeah. just quickly, are we discussing application tokens or base layer protocol, Ethereum, Definity, that group? I think that the uh, the biggest fallacy maybe on, on value accretion was, was on the utility token side. Um, and I think that that is where it's most clear that, you know, the value, that, that a lot of these tokens, I think it's become clear now that like there was no value accrual um, or capture uh, mechanism for them. Um, and that, that's why a lot of them didn't, didn't capture value. I do think that we are seeing increasingly um, tokens that do have value capture mechanisms, whether that's staking um, or, you know, revenue buyback kind of programs on the tokens, but there's a real way for, you know, value capture to happen at the token level. Um, so I think that is, is very promising. But, but more generally, I think that companies that have the relationships with customers and can, uh, you know, charge, you know, make money, uh, make revenue, you know, kind of based on that relationship, that's where the majority of the value will continue to accrue. Very interesting. So, so this the, those companies would fall under the picks and shovels category, or would you also include crypto native, quote unquote, companies there too? On kind of which which category are you talking about? You you, you said the the companies that will perform the best will be those that actually have paying customers and, and value will accrue to, mm -hmm. you know, crypto companies that are modeled around more traditional services. So my question was, are these companies that exist on a blockchain or off a blockchain? It could be both. It could be both. It could be, it could be either, yeah. Do you investing in both of those categories? And, and just quickly, you know, having having reviewed Jump's portfolio, it seemed to me as if most of your investments to date have been made within this picks and shovels category. Yes. Yeah, so, so we are very interested in companies that are providing, like the infrastructure, like like trading infrastructure, for example, like things like, you know, 
order management, execution management system, things, things like that that I would, I would call like trading infrastructure, mm -hmm. um, which is different than like the like protocol infrastructure. Um, so we're investing in, uh, we like picks and shovels companies. We like companies that, you know, have real revenue um, and they're so solving real problems. I'd say that that's kind of the, the main things that we're, that we're excited about. Would you ever see yourself investing in a protocol or, or a token project? It would be so much outside of that. Yeah, not, not, not right now. It's out outside what we're, what we're focusing on right now, yeah. But you do expect to see new coins come onto the market that are valuable, quote, unquote, crypto theses from May 2019. <laughs> um, and, and, and you... you Followed on by saying these will these will be new currencies and and they will challenge existing currencies like Bitcoin and Ether and perhaps Monero. So what does that path look like for for new currencies to come to market and actually accrue some kind of monetary premium? What was interesting earlier is that you mentioned Bitcoin had this collective belief system and that that would be difficult to use up. Do you do you see the currency market as a uh, as a power law market? Or do you think that there can be several concurrent winners, as it were? Yeah, I think for... There's like a couple so, questions. Yeah, yeah. Like something like what is going to be digital gold, the store of value? I think that there's a power law there. And that Bitcoin has a strong lead. For other types of tokens that have value accrual me mechanisms, whether that's staking, buybacks, diff different ways that the token is accruing value... I think that there's room for many of those types of, you know, tokens in, in the market. So it's, it's th I think that there will be many winners uh, across the space before the specific digital gold. I think that there's probably one winner there. Sure. So how do you think about something like Ether? I think it's the leading smart contract platform right now. It's most stable coins are built on it, and I'm, I'm long stable coins. I know that, but yeah. Ether... Specifically, Ether, the currency. Like, I don't have a, like the price. I don't, I don't have any view of like Not the, the price, price of it. Just, yeah. You know, I personally tend to think that Ether is contending directly with Bitcoin for a monetary premium, and uh, the same properties that enable Bitcoin to be a good replacement for, for for gold, a digital gold, as it were, applies similarly to Ether and perhaps a apply even better to Ether. Is that something you would agree with? or uh, I, I, I put them in different categories. You, you, yeah, you, you yeah. I like to, if, if you've heard um, Andrea Santinopoulos uh, gave a talk about comparing Ethereum and, and Bitcoin. Well, I just, one, yeah, yeah, the, 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 the whale and the shark. It. Yep. And it's, you know, which, which is better? Well, it depends what, what you're looking for and what your environment you're in. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thinking, about, thinking about, you know, as we wrap up the conversation, looking into towards the end of the year, what exactly you're excited about and will dominate conversations in both trading and venture capital. Um, you were in a meeting before you got here with another VC who I won't mention, but what is consuming these types of conversations? Yeah, I what's think, everybody excited about? What's everybody excited Different people are excited about different things. Uh, what I'm excited about, I'm excited about crypto really um, uh, 
uh, emerging as a global payment rails, largely powered by stablecoins, where it's actually used to move uh, significant amounts of money around the world and between different currencies in a seamless way that's accessible to everyone. Um, I think that when that starts to have impacts on other asset classes, specifically FX, I think that that will be extremely interesting. And then I think Bitcoin's continued emergence as a, a store of value that has a place in a lot of portfolios um, and how that happens, uh, I think is really exciting. And then the, like, things like the, the, like the lending and borrowing market, like that, that is an, an emerging market in the crypto space. And I think that there's a, a ton of potential there that I'm excited about. How do you as an investor build exposure to this stablecoin boom? That's a good question. That is a good question. I'm, I'm, that's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're still working on, on figuring that out, yeah. How do, you, how do you tap into that value if you see it being so valuable? And, and so just to give our listeners some context, for something like Libra, which is Facebook's stablecoin solution, one way to build direct exposure is to be part of the Libra Association. And that gives you some claim on interest that occurs to the float. Um, another way, an indirect way, might just be to buy Facebook stock. And hmm. Coinbase, Coinbase and, and their USDC product, which has been incredibly successful and continues to grow There's on, a, circles. on a daily basis. Coinbase's and, circ and circles. Uh, thanks, Frank. That's slightly harder to build exposure to because that's still a private company and they don't raise rounds particularly often. And, and when they do raise rounds, they're not exactly looking for uh, you know, Joe Schmo on the street to participate. Not that jump. <laughs> Is by any means Joshua on the street, but uh, but yeah. So, the, yeah, so, I, I so think those that, are a couple of different avenues. Yeah, I think that that's a good uh, kind of summary of some of the ways to participate. Yeah, certainly you can participate de directly in like the tokens, like Libra. Uh, stable coins are largely a float, uh, you know, game, a business model. Um, so there's certainly a business model there that you can look to participate in. You can look to participate in the the on and off ramps and the exchanges of those assets, because at the end of the day, at least in the near term, you're still going to need to go to, to fiat at the end of these transactions, or the majority of them. Um, and you can look to participate in who's building the user interfaces to make this easy to do. I think that for this to get mass adoption, where you're really seeing crypto being used to move you know, very large amounts of money around the world, Ideally, the, it's just a seamless interface for folks that is integrated into what they're already using. And in many times, they won't even know that they're using crypto on the back end. And that's something, I mean, we're already seeing that with remittance companies that are looking at crypto as back end rails for what they're doing, um, where it's not something that the end user knows or cares about, per se, but is sometimes just a better rail for sending money around the world. So I think we're going to continue to see more of that. So, so what is that user interface that makes it really seamless to the user will be important. Absolutely. And the, the on-off-ramp solutions that you, you mentioned, that I, I feel like that is a particularly large opportunity for jump, specifically jump trading, as really those are market-making operations. Yeah, Pete, I, I think Pete so. Pete nodded his head. Yes, I think so. 
Pete, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing your insights, talking to us, walking us through these very interesting topics. What What are you doing next in New York? What's What's on your agenda? I Golden Inn FinTech Conference tomorrow. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Are you? Um, what What panels are you watching? Uh, oh, there's you, there's there's there? there's a lot of good ones. A lot of good ones. Yeah. I wasn't invited. I'm kind of little. I was gonna say we. Yeah. We should go. Well, maybe after Marty left, that's our that was our last in at the company. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate we appreciate your time. Thank you guys. It's a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode.